0: Welcome back to our second message in our series, Creed, where we're talking about beliefs that we cannot live without, those beliefs that are so serious to us that we'd be willing to have them tattooed on our mind and on our hearts, never to forget them and never to forsake them. Now, this weekend, our belief that we're going to look at begins really as a mystery I don't know about you, but I really enjoy mysteries, and uh, I've gotten hooked on a show, a reality show on the History Channel that I've been trying to watch, and it has to do with the mystery of Oak Island. I wonder if you have uh, seen that. It also goes by the curse of Oak Island, but the mystery of Oak Island sounds better to me. And it's about some eccentric uh, treasure hunters who are trying to find what they call the money pit. Supposedly a vault filled with silver and gold buried over 40 feet beneath the surface someplace off Oak Island near Nova Scotia, Canada. And so what happens is every episode they keep unearthing more clues and you're kind of left hanging and now I'm left hanging till next season to see if they're actually going to find the money pit. Well, we're going to explore a mystery that is found in God's Word. In fact, there are many mysteries in the Bible. And fortunately, most, not all, but most are solved if we're willing to follow the clues. And I promise you that when this mystery is solved, it is far better, far greater. It yields a treasure more powerful and more costly than any money pit or silver, or gold could ever buy or be worth. So what is that treasure? Let's find out. Uh, The passage we're going to look at today is found in Psalm 22. And that's where our mystery begins. Psalm 22 is written by David, and it appears to be autobiographical. He's talking about himself. At least that's what it seems like on the surface. But this is where the mystery comes in. You start reading Psalm twenty two carefully, you begin to realize that this really can't be um, about David, because there's a lot of things that we know about David, and what he says about himself just doesn't seem to add up. Let me give you a couple examples. Let's look at some verses together. For instance, in verses six through eight he says, But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. So you get the sense that David's writing about a pre awful situation in his life. You go on to verse 15. He says, My strength has dried up like, like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust left me for dead my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs an evil gang closes in on me they have pierced my hands and feet i can count all my bones he's so emaciated that you know it's like his ribs everything is showing my enemies stare at me and gloat they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing so you read that passage and you just think to yourself well, when did that ever happen to David? When did he ever experience something like that? And we know a lot about him, and there's no instance when David is in a bad situation like that. I mean, he suffered. Saul tried to hunt him down. His own son tried to uh, do a coup and get rid of his dad. But David never took anything laying down. He was never publicly executed, and we don't know of any nail piercings in his arms or hands or feet, so this really can't be uh, about David, which then begs the big question, well, you know, who is this really all about? What's, what's going on in this passage of, of Scripture? In order to answer that uh, question, we have to ask a few more questions, because whoever this is about, they feel absolutely forsaken and abandoned by God. Look what it says in verse one and two. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. So if this not if this isn't David, who feels abandoned by God, you know, who could this possibly be? And why is it that Though they act and say they're forsaken, they also go on and make it sound like they're going to be rescued, like in these verses. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. You get that sense like, I feel forsaken by you. I'm begging you for help. I am going to get rescued. And then he says some things that seem to indicate that because of everything that he's going through, that it's going to change the world. Listen to these verses The whole world will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For royal power belongs to the Lord, he rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him, all who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. So what a mystery. David writes it. He writes it as though it's about himself. But nothing in his life or history adds up to any of these things that are being said whoever it is feels forsaken, yet believes to be rescued and believes somehow that what they're going through is going to change the world. So, you know, who can this be? And to ask that question, we go to the New Testament, and we go to Peter, the apostle. His very first sermon after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. He's preaching, and he wants to talk about David In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, he tells us that besides being a king, David was also a prophet. That's an important clue. That means that sometimes when David spoke, he was not just speaking about himself. He was speaking about something in the future. He was speaking about someone else, possibly a descendant, perhaps the Messiah, which is to come from the lineage of David himself. And then Peter goes on in his sermon, And he says something about David and about the Messiah. He's actually quoting from Psalm 16 and listen to what he says. Peter preaches, says, King David said this about him, that's the Messiah. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave you'll show me the way of life, and you'll fill me with joy for your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. In other words, everything we're hearing right now, he says, from David, though written by David, was not about David. It is about the Messiah. And Jesus solves the whole mystery for us when he says these words in Matthew chapter 27 from the cross at about three o'clock. Jesus called out with a loud voice, "Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani," which means, "My God, my God, why have you abandoned me?" And that—that's who David was talking about. Through David's own suffering. God gave him a picture of Jesus and his suffering and David's words became the words about Christ and Christ rightfully took up those words in essence to say what David said in Psalm 22 was all about me. Now the question is, is the mystery entirely solved for us? And the answer is yes, we know who Psalm 22 is all about but it kind of opens up another mystery. And it's this mystery of of why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would God forsake his son? What does that mean to you and to me? And ask that question, let's think about a couple of things together. First of all, when we think about Jesus and his suffering on the cross, we understand that he willingly suffered the loss of his father's presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so you and I could experience his father's forgiveness and his father's love. So think about it again. Jesus willingly suffered the loss of his father's presence so that you and I could experience his father's forgiveness and his father's love. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it is said about Jesus that he went to his suffering. He went to the cross like a sheep goes before its shearers. That is, he went quietly. He went silently. I mean, you think about this. When the crown of thorns are placed on his head, we don't hear Jesus screaming or crying out. Or when uh, he's beaten and is beard is being pulled, we don't hear of him crying out or screaming, or when he receives those horrible lashes from the Roman's whip. We don't hear of any noise, there had to have been, but we don't hear about it. The only time we ever hear him truly cry out is when he's hanging on the cross and he's literally abandoned by his father. Now, you and I can only begin, barely begin to imagine a little bit about what was going on there if we've ever lost someone we dearly love who's close to us. And especially if you've ever lost a child. I can't even put words to how that must feel to lose a child. But if you know something of that ache, then you can understand something of the ache in the Father's heart and the Son's heart. I mean, think about this. Father and Son have been eternally together, always together, the same essence. And somehow, at the cross, that essence is ripped, so to speak, apart. And for the first time in all of eternity. Because Christ has always been. He's not created. He's always been. There is this separation that occurs. And you and I cannot comprehend the agony of what that must have been like. And that takes us to a second important principle. Though forsaken for our sins... Jesus remained faithful so we could be reclaimed by God's love. Though forsaken for our sins, the Father forsook his Son because of our sinfulness. Jesus remained faithful. I'm going over this twice because you got to kind of digest it, all right? He remained faithful so we could be reclaimed by God's love. Again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If I were to say to you, my Marsha, my Marsha, you may not know who Marsha is, she's my wife, in case you don't, but you would have a sense that there must be a, a relationship there, there must be some kind of a, a, a closeness there, like there was between the father and, and the son. And if I, if I sketch it out for you a little bit here, and you think about Father and you think about this barrier and you think about Jesus the Son and there's these question marks where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? In essence what is happening here is that Jesus is saying Father you have to forsake me because I have now taken on the sins of the world and even though you have to forsake me and I feel that forsakenness I feel abandoned by you I choose, I choose to still be faithful because we love the world. We're doing this for them. And again, you know, how do we comprehend the depth of that, the power of that? He would do that for you and for me. One more thought I want to share with you, and that is this. In Jesus Christ's redeeming love, we find our eternal salvation. In his redeeming love, in his buying us back, that's where we enter into eternal, yes, eternal salvation. Because in essence, here's what happens. Jesus the Son of God, takes on and dies our death so we don't have to die. Jesus lives the life we should have lived but could not live. And the Father accepts that. He accepts that and says, that's good enough now to pardon Dale. To make Dale a joint heir with my son. To make him acceptable in my son. To now declare him not guilty as though he has never ever sinned. Now the question for you and me is, how does this mystery that we're uncovering now, how does it practically work itself out in your life wherever you're sitting right now or standing how does this practically affect our lives and this is you know we've already started looking at some riches here okay we talk about eternal salvation this is far far richer than gold or silver or any money pit that could be found let's look at its practical implications first of all when you think about the cross of jesus it reveals the absolute holiness and love of God for you and me at the same time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross reveals God's absolute holiness and absolute love both at the very same time. The problem is when we think about God's holiness and we think about God's love, we have a tendency to lean into one more than the other. Let me sketch it out for you. Let's just think about God and the fact that he is holy, his holiness, right? He's perfect. Let's think about God and his love. And even though I've separated them, you honestly can't separate the two, all right? Because God is one. The holiness and our love together. But what I'm doing is I'm thinking about how we view God's holiness and God's love. Now, if you're real conservative, so to speak, I'm not talking politically, you tend to lean probably more towards God's holiness. And when we lean toward God's holiness, we have a tendency to think about our relationship with God as being somewhat transactional. That is, God is holy, God is perfect, God is righteous, therefore In order to please God, I have to be perfect, I have to be righteous, so I try my best to live a holy life, and therefore the the holier I feel, then the closer I must be to God. And it's almost as though if I live good enough, God kind of owes me his love and his favor. I mean, that was the Pharisees. They were all about acts of righteousness. It was about how holy and righteous they could be, and they almost based their salva- well, they based their salvation on how good they were. know it's almost like God owed them something back as a result of that. And even as followers of Christ, we can fall sometimes into that hole, and a lot of times it depends how we were brought up and how we're wired. I understand I understand this leading. This is how I was brought up. It's how I was kind of educated in a way. You perform in order to please God. And, of course, the only way you can feel like you perform well enough enough, is you have to measure yourself against others, which is what the Pharisees did. I mean, I grew up in a church culture where people talked about other people all the time, about their sins, about what was wrong with their life, and I'm sure the reason they did that was to make themselves feel better. How about you? Of course, the more liberal you are, you probably tend to lean more towards God is love. That's just who God is. In His very essence, God is a loving God. He can't help himself. He's loving. Therefore, I don't think so much about what I need to do in order to be accepted by God. God just accepts me. He just loves me, and I, I can kind of do what I want. In other words, I have a lot of freedom. Sin isn't such a big deal. Performance isn't such a big deal. After all, God does love me. God is love. God loves everybody. Do you see how distorted that perspective is? I mean, that perspective doesn't recognize or appreciate God's holiness. God's holiness and God's love can't be separated. And so when Christ died on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to turn away from his son because of his holiness. But the son remains faithful and dies for us because of God's love. And that ought to move us, as Tim Keller says. That ought to drop us to our knees. That ought to cause tears in our eyes when we think about this holy and loving God who pours himself out for you and for me. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, it makes you hate your sins because they led to his death, but it forbids you to hate yourself because he did it for you to make you free. All right? Let's look at a second principle together, another practical way this impacts our lives. Understanding the cry of Jesus from the cross gives you the grace to deal with suffering in your own life. Think about it this way. Knowing Jesus suffered on the cross gives you a companion in your own suffering. There is no other religion, there is no other God that comes and suffers for and with his people. And it is true. Every time you suffer, God suffers with you. Years ago, there was a British minister, David Watson, who was being used greatly by God, not just in Britain, but throughout Europe. And then all of a sudden, he got cancer. And it was terminal, and he knew he was going to die. And I want you to listen to what he wrote. He said, someone once said to me, there cannot be a God of love, because if there was, and he looked upon the world, his heart would break. But the gospel points to the cross and says, It did break. Yeah, God's heart breaks for this world. And it broke. And God's heart breaks for us when we are suffering. Whether it's physical suffering or or emotional suffering or being persecuted. He knows that physical suffering. He knows that emotional suffering. He has been broken too. And when we wonder where God is, he knows what it's like to wonder where God is. For he asked his father, why have you forsaken me? There is nothing you won't experience in this life that he, our Savior, has not experienced too. And sometimes, sometimes just knowing that Christ understands, sometimes knowing he's there with me in my hospital bed, he's there with me at home where I'm alone. He's there with me with my secret thoughts, my feelings of abandonment, my doubts, Knowing he's there with me is all I need. I don't need all my questions answered. I just need to know he's with me, and he is. Finally, knowing that Jesus suffered on the cross gives you and me a future. Knowing he suffered on the cross gives us a future. It gives us the hope of eternal life. I want to read something to you by Michael Green. He said, Jesus' cry on the cross means, for Christians, there is a future for suffering. Suffering ultimately is not blind, wanton, and senseless. It has a purpose. Look what Jesus' suffering produced. Look what benefits flow from the awesome suffering gladly endured. It is the same with Jesus' followers. Mystery though it is, much flows from it when it is gladly endured. Character is formed by it. Art and creativity is stimulated by it. Compassion and care is evoked by it. Royalty comes from it. Jesus was regal on the cross in his suffering. And in the end, the greatest mystery of all, Second Corinthians four seventeen reads, for this light momentary affliction, which is only for a moment, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all all comparison beyond the money pit. So my friend, wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're enduring, understand this. What awaits you in glory cannot even be comprehended by the human mind. All that God has for you and me, all that he's prepared for us See, the belief we're talking about here is known as the doctrine of salvation. And there is salvation in no one else save Jesus Christ alone. Every other form of salvation fails, it doesn't work. Look at the world only Christ saves. And we've seen the mystery of our salvation this weekend. You know, when it's all said and done, what we're saying is simply this. Salvation is the fact that Jesus gave up his life so you and I could have eternal life. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of what happened Back, I think it was 1982, when Flight 90, an Air Florida flight, took off in Washington, D.C., and couldn't get the height that it needed, and crashed into a bridge and landed in the Potomac River, which was freezing. The water was rough. The temperatures were just, like I said, freezing cold, and there were only a handful of survivors. In that miserable weather, the only rescuers that could show up right away was a park ranger helicopter with two people on board, two pilots. And as they hovered over the wreck, they looked down and they saw one survivor who seemed out of the few that they could see, the most most alive, the most well, and they dropped a life jacket down to him and... uh, Arland William Jr. took that life jacket and gave it to another survivor that was nearby. And they dropped another, and he gave that away. The guy kept dropping down life jackets, and he kept giving them away to the five or six survivors that were left. Then they dropped the lifeline down to him. But rather than you know connecting it to himself, he passed it on to this swimmer, and he passed it on to that swimmer. And he passed it on to this person who was treading water. And he passed it on to that person who was barely hanging on. And when they had gotten the five or six that were there, finally lifted to some safety and came back for Arlen William Jr. He was gone. The cold and rough water had taken his life. But not before, not before he had saved the lives of some fellow passengers. It's a powerful story that gets repeated throughout history and time of men and women who set their lives aside to save a life of a child, to save a life of a stranger, of another person, because they value that person's life more than they value their own. Jesus valued your life and my life, the life of every human being that's ever been born more than his own. I hope you believe and are committed to and will stand on this beautiful, mysterious doctrine of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these few moments we've had to unpack this mystery of our salvation what you and your Son did for us in order that we might be forgiven and be brought back into relationship with you again and have the absolute assurance of eternal life. Father, words are not enough to thank you. We surrender our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, what a beautiful experience for you and me to be able to celebrate communion having talked about this doctrine of salvation. And hopefully you have some bread and some juice available right now. If not, um, would you just grab some real quick? And we're going to celebrate communion together. I've got my little package of bread and, and juice here. And what this represents is everything we just talked about what Jesus did for you and for me. Why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why he faithfully endured being forsaken so that we could be reclaimed by God's love. Jesus said to his followers before he went to the cross, before he uttered those words, that the piece of bread in his hand, like I have in mine and I hope you have in yours, represented his body. Jesus said, Jesus said, This is my body, my life, in exchange for your life. I'm about to absorb all your sin, all your guilt, and all your shame and empty it out of you so my Father can accept you. Would you take that and eat it in remembrance of him doing that for you? And the cup, Jesus said, is the proof. It's the representation of his life being poured out for us. His life a sacrifice for our sins. His blood was shed. His life was emptied so that we could receive his spirit into our lives. And now we are told in the scriptures that everyone who believes sincerely in Christ has Christ within them. Now our responsibility is to, is to yield and surrender to that living presence. As we take this cup together, let us drink and surrender to him. Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, remembrance of me. Amen. Well, listen, I look forward to being with you again next weekend as we continue to look at some more things that we can't live without, beliefs that you'd be willing to have tattooed on your life.